Welcome to the BCP and Me, the podcast that explores the Book of Common Prayer as a manual for living out our lives. My name is Father Tyler Richards, and I am joined here by Father Joshua Nelson as we continue exploring the rites, the liturgies, and the scriptures of the 1979 Book of Common Prayer according to the use of the Episcopal Church of the United States. Also known as the New Book prayer by many in the church (laughs) still known by the the new book uh good afternoon father joshua good afternoon bringing all of your snark with you today uh Mm -hmm. fasten your seat belts it's gonna be happy night (laughs) you got betty davis eyes um, suddenly we've launched from musicals into classic cinema. I don't know if we can handle this translation in media. <laughs> all all while on the radio. <laughs> um, indeed. How's everything in Ohio? Things are going great in Ohio. Today feels like the f- real first day of fall. Um, I know you already get that up in Wisconsin. Um, but... <laughs> I mean, it was beautiful this morning. It was high 50s. I went and walked along the Ohio River and um, just had some nice meditation time this morning. Wonderful. How about yourself? Things are good here in Wisconsin. Um, We are also enjoying fall setting in. Uh, As a friend of mine put it, Mother Nature decided that it was fall and she put on her Uggs and ordered a pumpkin spice latte and called it a day. So (laughs) it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Forget about the pumpkin spice latte. I had a chider today. Oh, what? A chider. Okay. A a spiced chai, but made with cider. All right. I, I am. I'm interested. It was very, 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 very. Uh, that's that's going to have to be something that waits for me after I finish this keto diet. Um, but it'll it'll be there at the end. Um. So we have gathered here today in the sight of God and the internet to begin our discussion of the three holiest days in the Christian year, arguably. The Triduum. I, I don't even know if it's arguably. I think the Church Fathers just kind of told us it was. Uh, some people point towards Christmas. Uh, some people uh, point towards that end of the of the uh, of the liturgical cycle. But I think that the Triduum really pulls us into the mystery and into the complexity of Jesus's life, death crucifixion and resurrection well that that is kind of a cool point cool spot for historical context of this particular liturgy the triduum it meaning three days is three separate services but one long liturgy you go home and come back breaks in between but it is one liturgy And secondly, for much of the early history of the church, the church didn't care about Christmas. Mm. The church didn't really care about the birth of Jesus. That wasn't um, the main focus. The main focus was on the passion, the death, and the resurrection. 
um, this new hope of new life. So that is why I think we can say, even from an historical context, that the Triduum is the most holy days, most holy liturgy of the church year. I, I think um, I think it is uh, the work of the pilgrim, and I'm going to screw up the pronunciation of her name, Agigia. Uh, anyway, she was one of the she was an early pilgrim to the holy city of Jerusalem in either the first or second century. And even then, um, this pilgrim to Jerusalem notes that the Triduum was already being practiced by Christians in the area. Um, uh, we we get her we get her account of going to the place where um, where the I forget the name of it, but the place where Saint Helena had built a shrine to mark the find the founding the finding not the, the, finding. Found, the finding of the true cross, which of course, as we know, is part of the, the complex structure known as the church of the Holy Sepulcher or the church of the resurrection. If you're Greek Orthodox, um, any kind of Orthodox. Um, and uh, they were already observing things like Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter vigil, even in the earliest days of the church. So we, we get into we get into the triduum very early in our history. And, and yes, triduum is a highly uh, literal term, three days, uh, as you were saying. And, you know, we've looked at other complex liturgies in our time together. We think about Palm Sunday and it being a couple of liturgies that are kind of tacked in together. But then we get into the Triduum, and it is three complete liturgies that are just tacked into each other, that one flows into the next and into the next. Uh, it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like a three-part NBC miniseries that you have to come back the next night to get the second part of, and then the third part of. That, that is a much better um, analogy for it than what I was thinking. If you are a music nerd or an opera nerd out there, it's like the Ring Cycle by Wagner. Um, you know, we haven't mentioned musical theater yet, but we can go with opera. <laughs> uh, the Ring Cycle is um, multiple operas that are one story and you have and when they're originally presented, it's one night after the other. So you have to come back the next night to get the next part of the story. Right. Um, and a as we, as we start down the musical theater um, paths, I'm, I'm thinking about the scene in, uh, in Jesus Christ Superstar, which if you want to see, you know, the story of the passion of Jesus Christ, told in only the way that Broadway can do it, Jesus Christ Superstar is really your show. I mean, you, you, you really need to lean into that a little bit. Um, but that's probably neither here nor there. Um, so let's get into where we start. Um, and when it comes to the Triduum, we should start at the beginning, which is a very good place to start. Ah, now we're in Sound of Music. Uh, they're going to throw us off. We apologize in advance for the rest of this podcast. 
the makers of this podcast have been sacked. Um, uh, so, Maundy Thursday, uh, what's in a name? Um, let's talk about the word Maundy. Maundy comes from the Latin mandatum, um, which then gets translated into oldie English. That's old with an E on the end, old English, or technically middle English, um, which gets moved into Maundy. And both of those words uh, point to a meaning that means to mandate or to decree. Uh, Father Joshua, you want to say some more about that? Uh, mandate is kind of a trigger word for a lot of people right now um, that we that I hear it and think about it. But another way to look at that is commandment. And this is pointing us towards the new commandment that Jesus gives his disciples uh, on the night of the uh, what has become known as the Last Supper. And he is teaching them the way of true servitude, true servanthood, and says to the disciples, I give you a new commandment that you should love one another as I have loved you. Um, and we'll see why that's so important through the actions and the drama of this liturgy. But um, I wonder if first we should begin with the collect for Maundy Thursday and set our hearts aright with prayer. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Almighty Father, whose dear Son on the night before he suffered instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, Mercifully grant that we may receive it thankfully in remembrance of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who in these holy mysteries gives us a pledge of eternal life and who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Notice the reference to these holy mysteries. Um, the service is often also called the institution of the Holy Eucharist um, and the mysteries of the Eucharist being body and blood. And it really is setting us up for what is to come, not just tonight, but the next few nights um, leading into the services of Good Friday and Holy Saturday. And I think, I think the, Perhaps the collect here throws us a little bit of a red herring if we're not care- or if we're not careful and we take things too literally. Mm-hmm. We get this name Maundy Thursday, and then we have this collect that points to the institution of the Eucharist, and then we start out with this reading from Exodus that talks about the institution of the first Passover, and so quickly you get this um, this tendency from commentators to point towards the Maundy and Maundy Thursday about the mandate to observe the Holy Eucharist. Unless you're Marion Hatchett or unless you're Derek Olson, who point us back to the fact that the the true commandment around Maundy Thursday, which is indicated in the Gospel of John, which we'll look at briefly, is about something else entirely. 
And when we dive into that, we see that the Passover, the institution of the Eucharist, actually point us to the mandate and not to itself. Mm-hmm. What's at the heart of what's going on in the Passover? What's at the heart of what's happening when Jesus is instituting the Eucharist? And what precedes the institution of the Eucharist? And and this is what we should take to heart, pardon the pun, um, for all of the liturgies, the rituals, uh, the way that we worship, the things that we do. It is what is at the heart of the matter. What is the meaning behind it? What is the inward and invisible grace that we are representing um, by what we do. So for those those who are interested in following along with us in your own standard issue Book of Common Prayer, where all of the page numbers line up, no matter what edition of the Book of Common Prayer you are holding, whether you have your personal copy of the green leather-bound Book of Common Prayer that I hold in my hands, or whether you have your gigantic red leather-bound primnal or pribble, that is a prayer book-hymnal combination or a prayer book-bible combination, all of the page numbers line up. We're on page 274. Or if you are joining us online at bcponline.org, the liturgy for Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and uh, the Great Vigil all fall under the tab for proper liturgies for special days, which is the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seventh uh, tab down on the left. Yes, we're still working inside of this subheading inside of the prayer book of proper liturgies for special days. Um, And what a better place to find the liturgy for Maundy Thursday. The rubrics, remember that italicized text that's supposed to be written in red, hence the word rubric, tells us that the Eucharist begins in its usual manner. I don't think there's anything usual about a Eucharist, but that's neither here nor there. It would seem strange to say the Eucharist begins in an unusual manner. (laughs) Using the following collect, psalm, and lesson, So your priest, or if you have a bishop, uh, the night of Maundy Thursday, processes in and begins the service. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Amen. Goes through the typical opening of how a Eucharist opens until we get to the collect. And then we have the colic that we just prayed with you a few moments ago. And then we dive into the reading and meditation of Holy Scriptures. If you are interested in taking a close look at Exodus 12, 1 through 14a, you will find there the story of God instituting the Passover to the people of Israel right before their deliverance from their bondage in in, or their bondage in Egypt. This is the night of the last plague when God strikes down the firstborn in all the land of Egypt, uh, acting as a final, uh, acting as one of the final or the final plague against Egypt so that the freedom 
of the people of Israel or the Hebrews. There's some interesting story work going on there so that the Hebrews may be granted their freedom so that they can eventually make it to the promised land. Um, and I think, the, is, I think it is important here to point out, though, also that even though this is the reading that goes with Maundy Thursday, um, many Christians associate Maundy Thursday with kind of a Christian Passover. It is not. No. Let's just make that clear. Uh, if anything is a Christian Passover, it will be Saturday night, Sunday morning, mm-hmm. and we'll get there later. Um, but this is not a Christian Seder. This is not um, a, a Christian taking on of, of Judaism's practices. Um, we just want to make that very clear. Yeah, and we could have a whole episode of the problems with, uh, with Christian satyrs and the doctrine of supersessionism um, and all of the anti-Semitic and uh, all of the conflicting religious ideals therein. Um, but that is another podcast altogether. We just want to make it clear that this is not, this does not give you any kind of standing to say, we're going to celebrate a Christian Seder this year. No, you're not, because that's a contradiction in terms. Yes. Um, so the Lord says to Moses and Aaron and gives them an entire list of, of ordinances of how the Passover is to be observed. And the people who observe the Passover in the right way are granted a deliverance from this plague. And this is the number of people who are eventually led out of Egypt and then get chased by Pharaoh's chariots and chariot drivers. And then there's the whole miraculous deliverance of the people of the Hebrews at the Red Sea that eventually leads them into the land promised to them um, by or the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants by God in the original covenant that God forms with Abraham. And then after we have this, this telling of how that was founded, we move into the Psalm, which I believe father Joshua, you have in front of you. Mm-hmm. And uh, shall we just kind of go through it? It is um, hearkening us back to this scene um, after the Passover of the passing through the Red Sea and um, an allusion to the Song of Moses. So in it, the psalmist says, he divided the sea and let them go through. He made the waters to stand on and heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud and all the night through with a light of fire. He clave the hard rocks of the wilderness and gave them drink thereof as it had been out of the great depth. He brought waters out of the stony rock so that it gushed out like the rivers. Yet for all this they sinned more against him and provoked the most highest in the wilderness. They tempted God in their hearts and required meat for their lust. They spake against God also saying, 
Shall God prepare a table in the wilderness? Because they believed not in God and put not their trust in his help. So he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna also upon them for to eat and gave them food from heaven. And I think there's one more, one more verse there that is also powerful. And I'm reading from a different translation than Father Joshua is. So mortals ate the bread of angels. He provided for them food enough. Mm-hmm. Are you reading from the King James just then? SV. Uh, sorry? The NRSV, which is not what is in the BCP. but Right. The BCP, for those of you who might have been reading along with us in, in Psalm 78, 14 through 20 and 23 through 25, you'll often find that when the psalm gets read from something other than the Book of Common Prayer, the translation is completely different. That's because there was a completely different translation of the psalm used for the Book of Common Prayer. Um, so that's why the images don't always line up when you're when you're reading um, from two different sources there. Mm-hmm which can lead to some really awkward moments in liturgy when people are reading from the book of common prayer and everybody else is in the NRSV and it's going, wait, which book are we in? But I digress. Um, I also love how this kind of takes us through the entire um, exile in the wilderness, right? Mm -hmm. It is, we we've, gone out of Egypt and we've crossed through the Red Sea and led by the fire and um, water from the rock and all these ways, miraculous ways that God has provided for his people. And here on this night, God is introducing us to the same thing. And so that, that brings us, all the way down to St. Paul and his uh, letter to 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Corinthians, and um, some words that might feel familiar to uh, to Episcopalians who are familiar with the Eucharist liturgy. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, uh, for those of you who are reading along with us at home. St. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Those words should sound familiar to Episcopalian ears because they are the words of institution, the literal words of institution, that we find as part of the anatomy of our own Eucharistic prayers. Isn't it amazing how much of the... Book of Common Prayer is found in Holy Scripture. I know. <laughs> it's like they were written at the same time. <laughs> um, 
So as, as we begin to think about looking at the history of Christian worship, we can look at the Book of Common Prayer, of which the words of institution have been a part of the liturgy from its earliest inception. And even predating the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, the Roman Missal, the Gallican Missals, all of the different Missals except the heat-seeking ones have the words of institution present inside of them. Because this is the model that we have as Christians for how the first, the original um, Holy Supper was, was instituted and celebrated by Jesus. Now, for those of you at home that are saying, wait a minute, they're getting off track. It looks like they're leaning into this idea that Maundy Thursday is about the Eucharist. Hold on tight, because we're not done yet. Yeah. I should also I should also point out um, that that this this whole thing with with the words of institution, like I said, has been there from the earliest part of Christian liturgy, dating all the way back to the first confirmed document that we have that mandates how the Eucharist is to be observed, um, even though it's much later than early Christianity. The apostolic tradition, according to Hippolytus, gives us the format for how these Eucharists takes place, and it includes the words of institution. So, taking you all the way back to third or fourth century, scholars disagree. You get the earliest patterns of the celebration of the Holy Eucharist there. And, and Justin Martyr's same time period is going to back us up on this, too. You're right, right. Uh, not to make a martyr out of Justin, but yeah, he's he's important for the movement. I've had my Wheaties today. The puns are just going to keep coming. And we don't charge you extra for those on the BCP and me. Now, when we get to the gospel, we have two choices for Maundy Thursday. Or I should say your priest has two choices for Maundy Thursday. <laughs> We have the the Johannine account, meaning from the account that comes from John. And then we have the Lucan account. I love those words, Lucan and Johannine. How often do you actually get to use those in conversation? And um, and I'm flipping to my portion here in Luke. I've got Luke up if you... Please, please. So from the Lucan account, which is Luke 22, 14, again, we actually have the first part is the institution of the Lord's Supper, beginning at verse uh, 14. When the hour come, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So that's important that in the Lucan account, this is a Passover meal. Continuing with verse 17. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my ballad. But see that one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to ask one another which one of them it could be, and who would do this. And then the second half, a dispute about greatness. The disciples arguing about greatness? Surely not. Not them. Beginning at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, just as my father has conferred on me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So here we are again at this curious quandary of of a Maundy Thursday in readings that seem to be pointing us towards the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. But wait, along comes John, there's myrrh (laughs) but wait there's myrrh and our friend saint john has a different story to tell this comes from the 13th chapter of the gospel of john um, verses 1 through 15 now before the festival of the passover jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end the devil had already put it into the heart of Simon of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who never misses an opportunity to put his foot in his mouth, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus said, you do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And here comes the linchpin. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe and had returned to the table, he said to them, 
Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Drum roll, please. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. And there it is. Now, the Eucharist, and I am just now realizing this, in the institution of the Eucharist in John and in Luke, uh, it is, as often as you do this, remember me. Like, this is something you're, it's, it's for you. You're going to do it. Um, and when we get to the washing of the feet and the uh, invitation to servanthood, is when Jesus says, uh, as I have done it to you, so you also should do it. So this is where we get the wherewithal, the biblical mandate to describe this evening, not only as Thursday during Holy Week, but Monday Thursday. Jesus gives the command that we should get down and we should wash the feet of those um, those there with us. I have a I have a reading here um, from from Derek Olson. I can find it in the book that I'm reading from, although it is a digital book. Derek Olson writes, Maundy Thursday lays bare the strength and power of humble service. The Maundy which the day gets its name is the gospel exhortation to love one another as Christ has loved us. All three of the great liturgical actions of the evening offer a powerful and disturbing example of what this love and service looks like. The Last Supper is an intimate gathering of friends, yet its elemental symbols and pregnant words reveal a host of deep meanings. The washing of the feet offers a vision of a leader who is strong enough in humility to perform the role of a menial servant in the midst of his friends. The stripping of the altar portrays in symbolic terms the stripping away, the falling away of all supports, defenses, and shields. Jesus could have run, but he didn't. Therefore, it is only fitting that we give John the last word. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends, which is John 15, 13. The prayer book continues. When observed, the ceremony of the washing of feet appropriately follows the gospel and homily which I would reiterate, needs to be brief on this day. Especially during the time of, of Holy Week, especially as we concentrate the focus of the Christian year down into these three powerful days, the liturgies that are inside of the Book of Common Prayer are designed to speak for themselves. Yeah, to, to all the preachers out there, and we are two of them, for Holy Week, get out of the way. 
really all the time, get out of the way. But particularly in Holy Week, just get out of the way. We have to remember that in the sermon is one of the ways that we are responding to the hearing of God's word. That's one of the purposes of the sermon is to is to point people towards Christian Christian life, life lived out to its fullness. But it is also there to respond to what we've just heard in the reading of Scripture. Do not neglect the opt of taking the option of after you hear these readings and knowing in your head what's coming next to simply stay up, sit to stand up and say, Amen. Now, this is where um, we're really going to dive in with both feet and talk about <laughs> as Father Joshua holds his face in his hands. And talk about one of the most controversial elements within the Maundy Thursday service. And Father Joshua and I, I think, are in the same camp here. Yes. Um, and uh, it's, it's the rubric inside of the Maundy Thursday service. It says, when observed, the ceremony of the washing of the feet appropriately follows the gospel and the homily. It should be observed. <laughs> um, it, and we should probably subtitle this in defense of washing feet. Um, <laughs> However you say that in Latin, let's try to figure that out. <laughs> so for, for this liturgy, we have to leave behind the Book of Common Prayer for just a little bit and pick up another book. And I don't know why I'm showing it to the camera because you all can't see what I'm holding <laughs> up. But it takes us to another one of our liturgical resources that in due course we'll talk about in full called the Book of Occasional Services. And there's all kinds of nuggets in the Book of Occasional Services. But inside of it is a particular, particularly powerful bidding. Um, um, and the rubric here says, if it is desired to introduce the ceremony of foot washing by a brief address, the following may be used. Fellow servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night before his death, Jesus set an example for his disciples by washing their feet, an act of humble service. He taught that strength and growth in the life of the kingdom of God come not by power, authority, or even miracle, but by such lowly service. We all need to remember his example, but none stand more in need of this reminder than those whom the Lord has called to ordained ministry. Priests, deacons, remember your place. The, ad, the address continues, Therefore I invite you who share in the royal priesthood of Christ to come forward that I may recall whose servant I am by following the example of my master. But come remembering his admonition that what will be done for you is also to be done by you to others. For a servant is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Father Joshua and I were 
were blessed to be formed at the same seminary, the School of Theology at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee. And the, and the triduum was a major part of the life of the seminary. It was not something that we ever left off. It was not something that we edited for content. It was presented exactly as it's presented with all of its rubrics in the Book of Common Prayer. And for me, one of the most powerful moments of this year comes about in the moment when we're gathered together in All Saints Chapel, which to me, it feels like a joke to call it a chapel, on the campus of the University of the South, and we're all lining up row by row, seminarians and undergraduates who attend the college there, coming forward to both wash feet and to have our feet washed. My experience was, because God is always trying to teach me humility, that it never failed that when I got into the chair to have someone come forward and to wash my feet, the person who ended up at my feet was someone that I was had a disagreement with or was unhappy with or wasn't sure how I felt about them, and suddenly they're at my feet washing them. It is impossible. I have three years of data to back this up. It is impossible to be angry at someone who is washing your feet. There's something about being called to this act of humble service, like our Lord and Savior was called to, that puts everything in perspective. That sort of reorients your perspective to see that as you serve others, others are there to serve you. It's an act of hospitality. It's an act of service. And sometimes it's even an act of love, especially when Jesus does it and we do it in the spirit that Jesus offers it to us in. And this is a bringing together of community um, in, in ways that we don't really have in our society. We don't, you know, we sit at tables and we clap each other on the back and applaud each other and, and things like that. But to really be a servant to each other is a whole new sense of community. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of about laying flat the playing field almost. Mm. Father Tyler and I both grew up in traditions that were not the Episcopal church. I know within the church of God and within many Pentecostal circles that the washing of feet wasn't just something that happened once a year. Don't tell Episcopalians that they'll freak out. But it was something that you did when you wanted to come closer to the people with that you were with, or to make amends, or or things like that. I remember driving home from college and I stopped at my grandmother's farmhouse and I walked in and all the ladies of the church were in her living room and they had pulled out pans of water and towels. And I was like, oh, this is an awkward moment to be here. So I went and I 
kind of hid myself in the other room, but I could still hear them through the door. Not only were they doing the action of washing each other's feet, but within each of those, they were praying for each other. The person who was washing and the person who was being washed, praying for each other and coming closer together and building a bond that doesn't happen outside that intimacy of washing feet. Now, this is the point in the podcast where I can feel the air going out of the rooms where people are listening to this in. And I can see all of the hands slowly moving up towards the neckline of, of shirts. Clasping pearls. and Grabbing at pearls. And I can feel that greasy feeling of dread creeping over them and going, I don't like to touch people's feet. The point, folks. Beyond it being the point, we live in a society that, by and large, we take for granted that we have soap and we have running water and we have access to these luxuries. Whereas, in the time of Jesus and his disciples, your feet were what they were. And Jesus reaches up and takes the foot of Peter in his hand. God only knows what Peter had stepped in that day in the streets of Jerusalem. And Peter often stepped in it. Peter often stepped in it and cleanses those feet. And it's, it's more than just a washing away of the grossness. It is a soothing practice when you have walked around all day and I did not really understand this until I went to Israel and I had my Crocs on, not my Crocs, my, um, I don't wear Crocs. What are they called? Tacos. Tacos. Thank you. (laughs) I had my tacos on every day and just walking around this very dusty place and stone roads, cobblestone. And, I'd get back to my room at St. George's College and my feet would just ache and they would be all covered in dirt and dust and be cracked from the heat and the sun. And I would go into the restroom and just stick my feet in the tub and just let the water run over them. If I didn't do that, I wasn't going to be walking anywhere (laughs) around for the rest of the night. It is also about bringing comfort. When you enter somebody's house, they wash your feet or the servants would wash your feet to bring you comfort. So to those of you that are squeamish about the idea of bringing washing of the feet into the liturgy, I would exhort you to check your squeamishness at the door. For those of you that might be reticent to attend a washing of the feet, I would exhort you to check your reticence at the door. This act of washing feet on Maundy Thursday, look out St. Anne's community, is an act by which the sacred ministers acknowledge their place in the community as servants 
And it also puts in the mind of those that attend that we are called to serve one another and to love one another as Christ loves us. That Jesus was willing to take off his tunic and tie around, uh, tie a towel around his waist and to wash feet, 12 sets of nasty feet, as a way to say, I love you. And there are some other rubrics and there's some other things here that we could get into. But I think the thing that we really need to focus on here is that whether we're looking at the account of the Passover, whether we're looking at the institution or the, in, the words of institution that we have from St. Paul, whether we're looking at the Lucan account or the Johannine account, what we get in all of these is a command and, exa- and an example of love a potent example of unconditional love. And that's really what lies at the heart of the Mondi, is that we love one another the way that Christ loves us, that we are willing to humble ourselves, humility defined as having the courage to serve, that we humble ourselves and we offer ourselves in humble service to each other, and that we also make ourselves available to receive that humble service. We see Jesus and Peter having this this back and forth in an argument that Peter's going to lose about how Jesus is not going to wash his feet. And then Jesus rebuts him by saying, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any share with me. And Peter, of course, misses the point. But In washing each other's feet, we reaffirm our commitments to each other. And we remind each other that we're all siblings in Christ. I can't think of a more powerful symbol that a Christian community could observe than washing each other's feet. I also want to point out, according to the Johannine account, Jesus washes Judas's feet. Judas hasn't left the room yet. He says, not all of you are clean, as John kind of adds in. But he washes Judas's feet, according to this, this gospel. We'll let you all start breathing again before we move on and talk about some of the other moving parts of this service. And by that, I mean parts that are moving. But in defense of washing feet, my final word is, you oughta, because you're missing out on a powerful moment if you're not observing that particular, particular, albeit optional, whatever, moment inside of this liturgy. Because that's when you really experience a powerful image of the mandatum that stands right alongside the powerful image that is revealed in the Eucharist. Why, why, would you not, why would you not take full advantage of all that God gives us in this? Liturgies are designed to show us grace and are designed to show us a deeper image of God's love for us. Trimming parts off because we don't like the idea of touching someone's feet 
those are presumptions that need to be examined closely and need to be decided if we're trimming them off because they're unnecessary or if we're trimming them off because they make us uncomfortable. There are moments in life when we really need to lean into the things that are uncomfortable. The other peculiar thing about Maundy Thursday is that in the Triduum, and before Easter is proclaimed at the Easter Vigil, the Maundy Thursday is the last time that the Eucharistic prayers are to be prayed over bread and wine to consecrate them. And we'll talk about some more about this on Good Friday, which is coming up in our next episode. But if you're going to have, if you're planning on having Eucharist on Good Friday, you have to, you have to, to, um, you have to sanctify the bread and the wine here. Oftentimes what happens is, is that after the bread and the wine is sanctified during this Eucharistic celebration that happens on Monday, Thursday, churches will take the bread and the wine and will take the reserve sacrament that's often in a tabernacle or in an ombre, depending on what your congregation calls it, and will move it to something called the altar of repose. And the altar of the repose is to remind us that God's presence continues with us and invites us to go and watch and pray with him as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the bread and the wine are removed from, are removed from the sanctuary inside of the nave of a church and often taken to a chapel or taken to a particular place inside of the sanctuary and set up with a candle burning nearby. So that overnight, in what's commonly referred to as the Gethsemane watch, people can come and pray before the reserved sacrament as as a way to consider that which has been done, but also to consider that which is about to happen. And this is another one of those parts of the liturgy that has kind of fallen out of practice and a lot of people feel weird about Um I know one of the weirdly weird things about it is being in the church in the middle of the night. But let me tell you, just like washing feet, it will change you. I know for me, my first experience of it, uh, I decided to be really bold and do the 11 o'clock to 1 a.m. watch. Um, And... I was the only person there, me and Jesus. Um, and that kind of intimacy uh, really drove it home. But my favorite experience of this Gethsemane watch was while I was in seminary, I liked to head over to the St. Augustine Chapel, where, which is where the altar of repose was kept just before the dawn on Good Friday. And so I'd arrive in the dark and begin praying. The candles are all around. And just for an hour, but within that hour, the sun would rise and begin shining through the windows and the stained glass windows. Um, And I would get up and I'd go and sit in the choir in the chancel of All Saints Chapel. And this great 
East Window, um, which I encourage you to Google, having Christ victorious, Christ the King, um, on this day that we're going to remember his death, the light is shining and spilling this image of Christ the King across me and onto the floor. Um, and even in the midst of the pain and the suffering, I could see the victory in Christ. You know, I know not everybody has a great East window from all saints in their church, but uh, take advantage of it. Spend some time with Jesus. See what you learn in the silence of that night. And I would also hold up as a devotional practice, making regular visits to the reserve sacrament that is already inside of your churches. The doctrine of the Episcopal Church is that the real presence of Jesus exists inside of those consecrated elements. You don't just have to wait until the altar of repose on Monday, Thursday, or the morning of Good Friday to make that kind of a visit. It's hanging out there to be prayed with. Jesus is waiting for you there. If you're, if you're Anglo-Catholic and you're into that kind of devotional thing, it's a powerful reminder of what is actually going on inside of your temple. I mean church, excuse me. The other thing that happens during the Maundy Thursday service that is particularly potent is the stripping of the altar. Oh, really, all the stripping of the altar, but it is the stripping of the sanctuary. Would you like to say some more about that, Father? Uh, so it, to us, the altar is, to many of us, the altar is the table, the um, uh, mensa that the bread and wine is served off of. But in the stripping of the altar on Maundy Thursday, we remove all the ornamentation, all the linens, all the hangings, until this space that is in front of us that has been so glorious and has shown us who Christ is and the presence of Christ is now not only empty, but quite literally naked and bare to prepare us for what is going to happen on Good Friday. That Christ not only is stripped of his clothing, but in course of those next 24 hours, Christ is stripped of his kingship. He is stripped of his divinity. He becomes a broken human being, naked as he was born, naked as all of us are, in birth, in death, in vulnerability. And in that, we too can be vulnerable with God in that moment. 
I've seen it done in some churches where as the altar is being stripped or after the altar is stripped, the reserve sacrament is moved from the tabernacle and moved from, from the altar to the altar of repose that the people come back and they kneel in silence. And the text of Psalm 22 is read. This stripping away is building us up, as you said, to what's coming on Good Friday. But it may also be stripping away parts of our heart, the hard-heartedness, the, the sometimes, um, I don't want to call it arrogance, but sometimes the lack of deference that we show towards these holy moments inside of our faith. Mm-hmm. We listen to the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and are so far from me? As we look at bare altars and empty walls and candles that had been that have been snuffed out. And the symbol that we celebrate sometimes rather casually throughout the rest of the church year is taken away from us. We begin to get into the mindset of what is beginning to happen. We can almost see the 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 guard and Judas coming for Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane where he's praying with his disciples that that cup might pass from him. We can almost see them coming for Jesus. when We look at this stripped altar. And quite literally here, the lights have gone out. It's, it's no longer safe. It's no longer comfortable. So as we were saying early with the washing of feet, if you're afraid to do it because it's uncomfortable, ooh, doggy, hold on. It's meant to be. The rest of the service points to that. It's meant to, you are meant to be uncomfortable. And it only gets worse. Or better. Stole my thunder. But (laughs) it only gets worse worse because it's going to get better the night is darkest before the dawn as as we as we leave as we leave Monday Thursday and we transition into Good Friday which I'm not going to steal our thunder for the next episode that feeling of being bereft needs to sit in our heart because it's going to come up for us tomorrow in Good Friday and To kind of end us here, I will say um, this service ends in silence. We walk out in silence. There is no recessional. There is no um, dismissal um, because it's going to continue into the next day. If this episode has left you with a feeling of bereavement, then perhaps we may have done our job correctly today. But know that Maundy Thursday leads into Good Friday. And what follows Good Friday is resurrection and resurrection hope. So as dark and as gloomy and as potent as this service seems and this liturgy seems, lean into the uncomfortableness of it. 
And join us again in two weeks when we take up the liturgy once more and explore the mysteries and plumb the depths of Good Friday. And we spend some more time thinking about the triduum that we have now entered into in our journey together. And as we point our eyes towards an empty tomb that will soon come on a morning, not unlike the Easter mornings that we celebrate even now. So in place of our usual signing off and our sending off, we leave you in silence to contemplate these holy mysteries by which the Savior of the world has secured for us salvation. And we'll see you next time.